Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. All right, welcome back, everyone. I hope you've been enjoying our discussion on biologics with Dr. K so far. In the last episode, we discussed the objective and subjective criteria for patients to qualify for a biologic and some pearls to get their buy-in. Today's episode will include several pearls on how exactly we choose from all of these biologic options for our patients with psoriasis. But before we get back in, I'll throw in our disclaimer that this episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, nor does it represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmsted Medical Center, or their affiliates. Okay, so you have your patient, you've decided that you want to start them on a biologic, and you have their buy-in, but what would give you pause to start them on the medicine? Or in other words, what kind of contraindications do you always screen your patients for before you start a biologic? Well, so um, basically, you really do have to know the black box warnings of your medications um, that you're starting. And I will tell you, all the biologics on the market right now, they have you um, really screening for tuberculosis. And I think that's the biggest thing and the biggest baseline. If you're going to use a TNF-alpha inhibitor, you have to screen them for hepatitis B and hepatitis C. Um, if you do have a patient that is at risk for hepatitis B, there's no reason you can't get them vaccinated prior to starting a biologic. I mean, we have the vaccine out there, but there are you know certain age populations of our group where it wasn't like you got the hepatitis B vaccine like when you were born. You know, It wasn't part of your vaccine schedule. And so that's something to definitely continue because it is such an easily preventable disease. So but I also do want to question, talk about the, go ahead. Yeah. While, while we're on the topic, so when you screen for hepatitis and their antibodies show up as non-reactive to hep B, do you have them get a booster before they start? So that's a good question. It's a conversation that I have with the patient. Um, I definitely think patients, like more so now than ever, if you say the word vaccine, it's it's like a Pandora's box yeah. <laughs> for some people, but you know, that, you know, it is, if they've already received the hepatitis B vaccine and they do need a booster, I think it's a great idea to do. Um, I don't think you have to wait too long to initiate your biologic therapy, especially if they don't have to do the whole series, you know, the zero, two month, six month thing, if they just mm-hmm. need that booster, um, it's very easy to sort of, by, by the time they get the booster and their antibodies have sort of reformed, you're only getting the biologic in the mail anyway, you know, two weeks later. So no, I think that, I, I think that, I think that's something great. A very great point to to bring up that I wasn't going to, so thank you. Oh, yeah, no problem. I've run into that recently, so I just wanted to see what the boss does. So, all right, but anyways, I cut you off, though. Oh, you know, the second, so, you know, we talked about the objective, just to recap, you know, tried and failed the right things. Do they meet the body surface area criteria? Uh, and, you know, are there any special sites, and are they in the age range? And the subjective we talked about, of course, is patient buy-in. Are they even going to do this? And the second is social determinants of health. And I love social determinants of health because it's something even recently that Medicare has really made an important factor in the medical decision-making of being able to, uh, you know, get, you know, being able to delineate your E&M code. So, you know, if you do have a moderate uh, disease status and the patient does have some sort of limiting social determinant of health, that's a level four visit now. This is something that Medicare, they cut, you know, they cut a lot of the, um, procedure codes in order to give more money to all of the people out there that are doing the hard work, the primary care doctors that are doing the hard work of dealing with patients' social issues, or even the dermatologists out there that's doing the hard work of, you know, we're not doing biopsies and excisions here in, you know, 
in waking up the CPT codes, we're spending a lot of time with these patients. We're only going to get an office visit. So they were very sensitive to that. And so if you can identify that there are social determinants of health and document that, that will help support the amount of time that you spend in that, with that patient to give you the ENM code you deserve. And so when you look at social determinants of health and what CMS defines them as, I took, I took it a step further and just basically said in the context of psoriasis, which was generally where I use this the most, mm-hmm. is what, that, what those sort of broad categories mean for you to be able to check in a psoriasis patient. So not having a refrigerator or reliable electricity to store your medication. You, there are people out. If you don't ask, you'll never know. Mm-hmm. Issues with memory, with no real guardian or helper or social support. We all have those patients that were like, why do you keep coming alone? But you don't quite meet criteria for like dementia. And you're sort of like, okay, is this, is this the right patient for this? Yeah. Uh, patients with fear of needles which is real, or unable to dispose of those needles in a fair and in a safe way, unable to accept deliveries because they live in a rural area or a building or assisted living facility, transportation issues for follow-up appointments and getting the necessary blood work. Here's your biologic. I'm going to give you a sample in the office. Hopefully you get it. See you in a year. We don't know like what's going to happen to you. Yeah. Like those are not good. <laughs> That's not a good candidate. Language and literacy barriers. So, you know, language and it's English, not having English as your first language is um is a barrier even they may they may speak the languages as but there are sometimes nuanced medical words that we might not be translating properly literacy barriers you know i looked this up on forbes before this call because i because i know that literacy barriers are the thing but like what like looking at american um literacy rates 54 percent of adult americans read at a sixth grade level wow as their maximum so you may see, you know, America has a 99% literacy rate, but like, how are we defining these levels of literacy? 20% are being very lowly literate. So we're giving, we're shoving these forms in front of them. We're telling them to sign them. We're handing them a brochure with, you know, someone flocking with butterflies with all these side effect <laughs> warnings and graphs. And they read at a sixth grade level. That's a social determinant of health that needs to be addressed. And then access to healthcare, you know, like their insurance status, even if they have insurance, like there's so much crappy insurance out there. Like literally like all you get for your premiums, you get to carry around this plastic card that doesn't get you anything. So you have to like, yep. you have to like know what their real access to their healthcare benefits are. And so those are the social determinants of health. And I didn't mean to, to go back to that, but those are all the things that I take into with the subjective. Yeah, no, that's good. Cause it's a, it's a big picture that we want to be keeping an eye out for to make sure that we're doing the right thing by our patients. And like you said, have their buy-in for it. So, um, so like I'd mentioned, we have the right patient. You're starting it. You want to make sure they don't have any contraindications. We were talking about tuberculosis and hepatitis, screening them for that. Are there any other kind of medical factors that you ask your patient about before you'd start a biologic too? That's also. Yeah, no. So, oh no, absolutely. So like, so we can talk about different things, like when we think of talk about you know different choices. But you know, um, <clears throat> we said that you know comorbidities can be both a benefit and a you know a thorn in your side when you're trying to pick a medication. So we talked about you know having to screen for tuberculosis for all this, but let's just take the TNF class for example. In this class of medications, you also have to be aware of the patient's travel or travel history to endemic areas because fungal infections have been known to be they've been known to be susceptible to those infections. You know, just like, you know, all of the, almost all of the medic, all of the, you know, disease defining um, conditions that people with HIV can get. You know, a mm-hmm. lot of those things you have to look out for in patients with, uh, who are on TNF-alpha inhibitors. 
Another thing that's unique to the TNF-alpha inhibitor class is that you have to look for a, a history, risk, or even family history of demyelinating disorders. Um, that's not just multiple sclerosis. There are some other demyelinating disorders out there, but any of them, if there is a first-degree relative um, with a demyelinating disease, then that I will not choose a TNF-alpha inhibitor for that patient. Yeah. Um, so, another thing that you have to think about, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, so Guillain-Barre, what other ones come to mind for you? So any, you know, obviously a patient, you know, you know, ALS, Guillain-Barre has been reported on patients that have initiated TNF therapy and multiple sclerosis are probably the big ones. Okay, great. The, you know, the other thing is, you know, when you look at TNF-alpha inhibitors, they are, are not indicated in patients that have stage four heart failure. But interestingly enough, you know, TNF-alpha inhibitors and ustekinumab, which is a 12-23 inhibitor, have demonstrated some cardioprotective abilities when you look at atherosclerotic disease. So we're not talking about necessarily, you know, heart failure, we're talking about pump, we're talking about pre that, all the inflammation and the atherosclerotic disease and the MACE events, you can see in some studies that there is a lowering of those events on patients on TNFs and on ustekinumab. And so I think that that's really, if you're looking at the whole patient, maybe a patient that has metabolic syndrome um, and is at high risk for, you know, MACE events, maybe that's, even though, you know, it may not clear their psoriasis as impressively as an IL-17 or an IL-23, still might be the right choice until we get some of that. You know, remember, the TNFs have been on the market now almost 20 years. These IL-23s and 17s just got here. We may see some cardioprotective data out of them. We just don't have it yet. Yep. You know? Exactly. Um, but like on the flip side of that, you know, some and, and then inflammatory bowel disease, we do have to think about with the interleukin 17s. It's in their black box. Um, there are some patients that have either had uh, new onset or uncovering of disease that they may have had. But remember, a lot of these patients in these trials who go on to IL-17s were maybe originally on a TNF, and so you know they their their disease was protected. Um, and they never knew that they had it because they were originally put on it for rheumatoid arthritis or psoriasis or psoriatic arthritis. Um, and so their Crohn's disease, when it was going to wake up in sort of a bimodal fashion that we do know that it does sort of in the teens to late 20s and then, you know, sort of again um, in the late 40s, like if you've been on this medication, it's been protecting you and then you come off of it and you're on a medication that isn't going to protect you. Is that is that a waking up of that disease or is it just you're not covering for that disease anymore with your mechanism of action? We don't know. The point is that you need to be aware of it. And I won't start an IL-17 in a patient um, that is that I feel is either high risk for the development of inflammatory bowel disease um, or has a first degree relative. And you know most patients um, won't want to start it either because there are other options. You don't. You know there are plenty of options. Exactly. We're lucky to have all these options. So that's you kind of oh, yeah. you check all the boxes for what they have or don't have, and you choose based off that. So. And again, coming back to like circling back to psoriatic arthritis, I think it's really, really important to ask that because that can help you make your decision. Some like you know, not every interleukin. There's only one interleukin twenty three that I'm aware of to the date of this recording uh, that has an indication for psoriatic arthritis. Now, does that mean that the other ones aren't working on it? And that's you know, Gusilkumab has the indication, but it doesn't mean that other ones aren't working on it. Sure, they are. They're just the FDA hasn't approved it yet, or we don't have their data. As much as we can assume that there's probably some class protection, you can't always assume that the efficacy is going to be the same either way. So it's sort of like, okay, if you have a patient that's on psoriatic arthritis and the insurance says you have to do rizokinumab, you can't do guselkumab, but you know they have psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, you know, am I going to cry a river over that? Not necessarily, because I do have some confidence that there is a class effect. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, again, it's good to know the mechanisms and actions of your medications to sort of try to gauge that. Another thing is we're talking about all these on-label you know conditions that we can treat, but you know when we look at JAK inhibition, which is going to be you know at the forefront of all of this. Um, in the next few years, it's, an, it's, it's the newest thing. You know, it's going to be used to treat severe vitiligo, alopecia areata, atomic, atopic dermatitis. And so if you can identify that your patient has an approved indication like psoriasis and they happen to have vitiligo or, you know, psoriasis and alopecia areata or, you know, or psoriatic arthritis and, you know, atopic dermatitis, well, then maybe you should choose a jack inhibitor for that for that patient because it'll cover all their diseases even if there are off-label diseases that we know are going to be on label soon so again sort of keeping your finger on the pulse and you know i actually find reading a lot of those throwaway journals you know the ones you're supposed to like read like while you're like in the bathroom like they are super <laughs> helpful as to like what is gonna be coming out you know and you don't have to over scientify yourself first thing in the morning when you're trying to Get ready for the day, but you can like, <laughs> but yeah, we try to, be, but 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 you can at least get an idea of like you know a little bit of like an idea of what's out there and what's coming. Now we know where you've gotten all your knowledge from getting ready in the morning. I get all my I get all my knowledge on the toilet, but but no, you're absolutely right though. There's some weird gratification I get whenever I can prescribe a patient a medication that will kill two birds with one stone, and I think that oh, is absolutely. a great great point with the jack inhibitors to keep those in mind. So. Well, it just and, and just to even say like another thing, it, it may be too much in the weeds, but I mean, you and I shared a patient who was on a TNF alpha inhibitor, ended up with a drug induced lupus, and the mm-hmm. phototherapy ended up like tipping it off. You remember her? Yep. And uh, and at the end of the day, she then she ended up dever- developing severe vitiligo, like after the fact, and so she just had all this like ridiculous autoimmune stuff going on. We were just shifting her immune system all over the place, and we're like, you know what? She's got psoriatic arthritis. Let's put her on a jack inhibitor. It's going to cover all of this, and it did. Yep, and she did wonderful. It's it one did. of the most grateful patients I've ever seen. So, yeah, that was a tough one, and she was she you know she suffered a lot, and it was, she was very disfigured from it all. And we were able like that was very gratifying too for us, I think. All right, so just to kind of sum things up, where we're at right now, you've got the patient. They're uh, good. They're a good candidate based on the severity of their psoriasis or the location of it. They don't have any of these contraindications. You get the blood work back, no tuberculosis, no uh, hepatitis, anything like that. How are you choosing between the classes or what's kind of making you pick one biologic or their top three over another for them? So I actually just let how they exist fight for themselves. Um, And a lot of the times there's things about them that'll just knock themselves off the list. So I don't have to sort of choose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's sort of like know the black box warning of every drug you prescribe right there. You'll get rid of a few things that are not in your comfort level. Um, know the mechanism of action of every drug you prescribe. If you want to give them one drug in the IL-17 class and the insurance is making you do the other IL-17, the patient, there's no other way the patient can get the drug. Do you have enough comfort with, with the data to say, okay, well, fine. I will, um, I'll accept that because, you know, something's better than nothing. And this is sort of the original drug class that I want to have. And we gave the sort of the guselcumab example with the psoriatic arthritis coverage. But, you know, it is a new medication. There are other 23s out there. They may get the indication if we just think about sort of a class effect. Mm -hmm. Know the FDA-approved indication of each drug you prescribe. Don't try to give adalimumab to a six-year-old. It's not going to get covered for psoriasis. 
uh, you know, so, you know, know the age range, know the FDA approved indications for each drug, because it'll, it'll either, it'll, it'll save you a lot of trouble in the long run, basically looking at the age of which it's indicated for, but also if they have a comorbidity, if they don't meet qualifications for psoriasis, maybe they'll meet it for psoriatic arthritis or another comorbidity they have. And then just know the top three side effects of each drug. We've talked about a lot of them, you know, if the, these aren't necessarily things that are going to be in the black box warning, but, you know, you know, with the TNFs, is demyelinating disease, you know, hepatitis C, you know, stage four heart failure, are these that, you know, side effects are contraindications to the drug? Yes. But then the side effects are also going to be like the things that patients are going to maybe experience. Upper respiratory illnesses by far across all of these um, biologics is um, a, a potential side effect. IL-23s and IL-17s, interestingly enough, like one to three percent of those end up with like more tinea infections than baseline. Although if you came to my clinic, I mean, you would make sure you'd like find it. I know. I think like 30% of my patients not on biologics have like, two <laughs> like so on their true. toenails. Or, so like, so like I, I, I don't like hang my hat too much on that, but you know, TB reactivation, lymphoma risks, um, a lot of the IL-17s and IL-23s were studied in patients that had solid um, organ tumors greater than cured greater than five years out. So that's like a really reassuring thing because they actually studied patients. So, mm -hmm. you know, if the patient has a history of malignancy and they're more than five years out, you know, you're going to sort of be more into the IL-17 or the IL-23s because they are actually studied with those and there were no reactivations. And across longitudinal studies and, 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 and the open labels, there haven't been any reactivations. And so, um, and just to add, like a lot of the times, if it's really, really bothering the patient, I will get with the oncologist and I've had oncologists approve, you know, you know, tumor clearance after, you know, two years. Um, and they just co-manage the patient with me and will allow me to put them on a biologic. So, mm -hmm. you know, talking to, some, talk, talking to other people is sometimes helpful. Yep. And I would also add too, for some of those comments, there's no of, app for that. You have to actually call them. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but I was just going to say, <laughs> um, another common side effect are the injection site reactions, obviously to throw that in there too, for what people might experience. Oh, great, I yeah. think it's, you know, so injection site reactions, I will say that ixekizumab, which is an IL-17 inhibitor tends to give people more injection site reactions. Um, that are severe enough in nature for them to be bothersome to the patient uh, more frequently than any other biologic um, that we use. And so um, a lot of the times what I tell the patient for all of these, you know, bringing the, bringing the um, medication to room temperature for about two hours before is helpful. Mm -hmm. Icing the area um, beforehand That's um, a nice pearl. for a few minutes is also super helpful. Um, and you know, sometimes there's nothing you can do. Sometimes the injection site reaction is so severe for some patients. It doesn't matter what the drug is. I've seen them with all of them, but I will say ixekinumab has a little bit of a notoriety for that. Um, you know, sometimes you have to, sometimes you have to change the medication if it's, if it's really bothered. I've only had to do that one time and I prescribe a lot of biologic. Yeah. Yeah. You do a lot of them more than anyone I've worked with. So the other thing that I also, you know, you were just saying, you know, we skip on some things, you know, the depression thing, which is also very, very controversial, oh, yep. the suicidal ideation. Um, you know, Brogilumab, which is an IL-17 inhibitor, which has just, you know, rock star efficacy. You know, the thing that really brought them down was, you know, they did have some, you know, some suicides in their, in their trial. And I will say that it is probably a function of a few things. It is a function of some of these older trials, they didn't have to do the suicide testing score. You know, like that wasn't like mm -hmm. a reportable thing that they, you know, so you know, the newer ones are sort of held to a different standard. And this was one of the first ones that was held to that standard. There hasn't been 
there's not that there hasn't been any other suicidal ideations in any other trials for any of these other new medications. Um, but the mechanism of action of that one's a little bit different, which is interesting to know. It's actually a receptor inhibitor of IL-17 as opposed to actually being an IL-17 molecule inhibitor. And so we may find that we don't know the science yet, but maybe there's something about that mechanism um, that is sort of molecular mimicry in the brain or whatever it is that can trigger depression. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It was a very small amount of people. Everyone involved in the trial um, had said that the patients had other reasons to, you know, you know, to have disquietude about their lives. But still, it, the, the data is out there and it's something to know about, you know, really screening for depression, especially if you're going to give that medication. Yep. No, that's a great idea. So kind of just to summarize, you want to screen them for some of those contraindications. You go through, you know, any personal or family history of the demyelinating disorders, such as multiple sclerosis, Guillain-Barre. Um, and then you ask about a history of inflammatory bowel disease and kind of clarify what that means for the patient. Um, CHF, depression, um, anything else that I'm missing on that list? Well, again, going back to the, so those, and I, these are sort of objective things. Like when you go back to the subjective, like what is their, what do they weigh more? Do they weigh safety or rapid onset? IL-23s and IL-17s have a rapid onset, mm -hmm. you know, but as far as like safety, if they're going to give them an IL-17, you do have to think about the black box warning of inflammatory bowel disease. And so what's the, what's the most important patient? Another thing we didn't talk about was long-term efficacy. So oh, why yeah. are we doing a prior auth every year? You know, so there's one IL-17 secukinumab that, this is in my experience, this is in their own graphs and in, in other head-to-head uh, -head trial graphs, is it does lose some efficacy after your significant amount, somewhere between 10 and 15%, depending on the study. So I don't often reach for that one um, because it has a rapid onset of action, but you're just going to be back to sort of square one with, you know, maybe one to two out of 10 of your patients in a year, you know, doing a new prior auth. Mm-hmm. Yep, and I've seen that like with a, it too. Kind yeah. of dropping off and after a year. Yeah, it just it's, it's sort of very like sudden at like nine to ten months. I mean, it can happen not to every patient, but it still does sort of boast one of the most rapid onsets. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, just telling the patient that because you also have to remember these patients have other people in their family that are on medication. They just want like I'll have what she's having, sort of thing. Like that <laughs> yeah. line from when Harry met Sally, will never get old. Like I'll have what she's having, but like that might not be right for you. Yep. Yep. And one final thing I will say before we sort of move on to like the prior auth process is the patients who have Medicare sometimes can qualify for patient assistance, but sometimes can't because of the weird way that the government can't negotiate with pharma still right now with the laws. And so what happens is, is, you know, Medicare patients end up falling into this, what they call this donut hole where they're responsible for sort of all of their medications. So one of the nice things with Medicare is like divided into four parts. So if they have a hospital benefit, there are drugs like ustekinumab, tildrakizumab, and infliximab, which you can actually have given to a patient. I know infliximab has to be given in an infusion center, but tildrakizumab and ustekinumab are shots that we can give in the office. But if you can utilize their Part B benefit and you can find an oncology infusion center or a local hospital infusion center that's willing to give, you know, buy and bill this patient for that medicine, you write the prescription, they go to the, the infusion center and have it administered. Nice. That's covered under their hospital benefit and it doesn't come out of their prescription benefit. That's a nice pearl. And you've done that yeah. for several patients, I believe too. Several. Yeah. But knowing which ones you can do it for, you know, obviously, you know, ustekinumab has a 1223 inhibitor. Um, Tildrakizumab is a, is a 23 inhibitor that doesn't necessarily have as fantastic data as its other IL-23 cousins, but you know, you have to take what you can get sometimes, and uh, but you have to know about this too. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so that is part two of three of my interview with Dr. K on biologics. In the third and final portion of the interview, we'll go over what the process looks like after the prescription is sent and discuss tips for navigating the roadblocks like prior authorizations that can keep your patient from getting their medication. All right, thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production along with our excellent team of students and residents with Dave, Dan, and Sandra who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com and that's with two Z's, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the Gren Zone. This episode is copyright 2021 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Grenzone Podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.